we live in a world where we think our performance matters. Maybe you're a performer. You got your list, and in your mind, it's been a good day if you've done this, 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 and this. And if you haven't done that, then it wasn't a good day. Maybe you're that person who expects your children, your wife, your husband, your employees, those around you, to check off their list. And until they do, they really haven't, you might not say it, measured up to your expectations to them. Because you want them to perform, and then you want to perform also. And in your mind, somehow, it gains a notch in your belt if you accomplish and do something. Or maybe you receive an award because of it. Or you see it as a way to get a bump in your pay. Or a gift for your achievement. And it goes on. Maybe you perform to God thinking, God, I'm going to do this and I'm going to sign up for that. And I'm going to do this for my sons and my son-in-laws and my daughters and my daughters-in-laws and my mom and my dad and my husband and my wife so that they know that I love them. And so you live in such a way that your performance in your mind shows them that you love them. So you have it all charted out. You're going to spend more time. You're going to do more things thinking that somehow that you'll gain the love and support by your performance for someone, and not only for someone, but even for God. And so we have Christians living every day of their lives, living by works as opposed to living by grace, and forgetting that we're saved by grace, but living by the sweat of their performance. And if we're really honest, you're worn out. Your wife's worn out. Your kids are worn out. Your husband's worn out, your boss is worn out, everyone's worn out, and you're worn out trying to keep up to prove your love, to prove that you love them, to prove that you love God. You're getting up earlier now because last year you got up at a certain time, and now this year you're getting up earlier because you want to prove to God that you love him. And so everything about you is performance when in reality, the truth of the matter is that we are loved the same by God, no matter what condition we believe that we're in. And so we struggle with that. And we live in that reality. Urban Meyer, who is a coach of the Ohio State Buckeyes, a good football coach, and some would even say a great football coach, found himself struggling with the same very thing. And at a time in his life when he was at the top of the coaching regime, winning, winning, winning two national championships with Florida, he found himself at the top, but at the bottom. Listen to his story, Urban Meyer. Legendary college football coach Urban Meyer tells a remarkable story about his father. During his senior year of high school, Urban was drafted by the Atlanta Braves to play Major League Baseball. Soon after arriving in the minor leagues, however, he realized he didn't have the necessary talent and called his father to tell him he was quitting baseball. His father informed Urban that if he quit, he would no longer be welcome in their home. Just call your mom on Christmas, he said. Needless to say, Urban finished out his season and ended up embracing the incredibly conditional world of his father, a world in which failure was simply not an option and reflection, another word for weakness wrapped in nostalgia. Urban went on to win back-to-back national championships as the coach of the Florida Gators. 
And some would chalk his success up to his uncompromising attitude and even work ethic. It certainly helped, but it turns out that these victories were short-lived, at least as far as Urban was concerned. The screws only got tighter. Once he had won these titles, anything but perfection would be viewed as failure. After the 2007 season, Urban apparently confessed to a friend that anxiety was taking over his life and he wanted to walk away. He was quoted in 2011 as saying, building takes passion and energy. Maintenance is awful. It's nothing but fatigue. Once you reach the top, maintaining the beast is awful, Urban said. In that same interview, the reporter described him as a man who destroys himself running for a finish line that doesn't exist. Soon the chest pain started, and then they started getting worse. A few hours after the Gators' winning streak finally came to an end in 2009, Urban was found on the floor of his house unable to speak or move. He had come to a breaking point. Soon he resigned, came back, and resigned again. Urban Meyer's story may be a bit extreme, but perhaps you can relate. Perhaps you had a demanding father or mother for whom nothing was ever good enough. Perhaps they are long gone, but you still hear their voice in your head. Perhaps you have a spouse who never seems to let up with the demands. For whom successes are not really successes, they're simply non-failures. You see, as gifted and driven as Urban Meyer was and is, no one can live under the burden of perfection forever. It may work for a while, but sooner or later, we hit the wall. Even when Urban was fulfilling all righteousness record-wise, he wasn't doing it out of love of the game or joy of shepherding young men, but out of a fear of weakness and fear of what he would mean and it would mean if he lost. If righteousness is a matter of motivation as well, then even when he was meeting the standards of performance set by his father, he wasn't really meeting them. Urban fell victim to a vicious form of performance. He had become a slave to his record, where the points scored on the field were more than just a proud part of his team's tally, but a measure of his personal worth and identity. And truth be told, Some of you are the very same way. You might not say, hey, I'm going to raise my hand up today. But everyone around you knows it. And you know it internally that there's this measure in your head that you're not okay until you're okay and reach that. Yet grace throws all our standards of measures out. It receives us as we are and it allows us to be loved without condition. What might happen this year? If you and me and all of us truly understood grace for the first time and lived by grace instead of the letter of the law, what might happen if we treated our children, our husbands, our wives, and those around us with inexhaustible grace? What would it look like at your worst to receive grace, 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 grace? Does grace promote freedom? Does grace promote you to a place where you live to your redeemed potential? I say it does. Grab your Bibles, and I'm going to show you what I mean, and turn to Mark chapter 14. And if you need a Bible, hold your hand up. 
But I want you to turn to Mark chapter 14. And we're going to read verses 27 to 31 and 66 to 72. But would you stand with me as we read Mark chapter 14, verses 27 to 31. Let's read this out loud together. Mark 14, 27 to 31. You will fall away, Jesus told them, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter declared, even after I fall away, I will not. If all fall away, I will not. Truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. Verse 66 to 72. While Peter was below on the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You also were that Nazarene Jesus, she said, but he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about, he said, and went on into the entryway. When the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those standing around, this fellow is one of them. Again, he denied it. After a little while, those standing near said to Peter, Surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. He began to call down curses and swore to them, I don't know this man you're talking about. And immediately the rooster crowed the second time. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. And he broke down and wept. You may have a seat. If we're rating Peter's performance here, he gets an F minus. If you're looking at his performance, three times he denies Christ. And he told Christ, before he went to the cross, he said, I will never deny you. Even if everyone else does, I will never. And as you see this account, he, he denies him once, he denies him twice, he denies him three times, and the rooster crows and he knows he's guilty. You see, you are not as you should be, but God loves you as you are. Praise God for that though. At Jesus' most difficult moment in life, Peter and many of his close disciples had deserted him. And in Peter's case, totally deny even knowing him. Imagine the last thing you did for your best friend. Just think about that. Think about a friend that's near and dear to you. Maybe it's your husband. Maybe it's your wife. Maybe it's someone else. But imagine the last thing that you've done for them before they died. The last moment that they can recollect spending with you and you can recollect. Peter's last moment to shine for his Savior, he denies, he denies, he denies. Jesus is carried away. He's crucified. He's buried. He's resurrected. And the last memory that Peter has of himself is he gets an F minus for his performance. So how would Jesus receive him and respond to him? He didn't pass the test by any stretch of the imagination. Yet God's love for us is one way, and it doesn't change based on any conditions. And he shows that just a few days after rejecting Peter, he begins to restore him. Everything in our world, though, is two-way. You do this, I'll give you that. 
You climb here, you pay for that. You say this, you get better, you bump you up. Everything in our world is two-way. I give, you get back. Owing and deserving seem to be written on the fabric of human life everywhere instead of grace. So what happens to Peter? Jesus dies, he's buried, and he's resurrected. A few days after his resurrection, Peter and his friends are out fishing. Watch what happens. Turn to John chapter 21. Jesus is about to, be asc- about to ascend into heaven. He's made a few appearances to disciples along the way, and in his final appearance, this takes place. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Look at John chapter 21, verses 1 to 5. John 21 says this, Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, James and John, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, Will you go with, we'll go with you. So they went out, got into the boat. But that night, what did they catch? They caught what? Nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shoreline. But the disciples did not realize that it was who? Who didn't they realize it? Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Now just pull away and jump into this scenario. Jesus' last recollection with his disciples, other than John, who was at the cross, other than him, his last recollection, no one's there, basically. They all deserted him. And the last recollection that Peter has of Jesus is that he denied him three times, and now Jesus is standing on the shoreline. The disciples are out fishing. They caught nothing. And they look, are not sure who it is. Jesus calls out to them and calls them friends. One of the the most endearing ways in the Greek that you can say friends, beloved, is, is spoken here. Jesus, in an endearing way, looks at the ones who had failed him, especially Peter, and says, friend, beloved, come. And so as he's standing there, he looks at them. He knows that they're hungry. He knows that they hadn't caught any fish. So he gives them some fishing tips. He says, take your net and throw them to the other side. Meanwhile, we're going to see he had already started a fire. He was cooking fish, barbecuing fish on the grill. Why? Because he wanted to sit and have breakfast and a meal with these men who had rejected him. Jesus shows true, incredible grace here. We have a lot to learn from him. Think about it this way. Always, you want to measure whether or not you place conditions on people in relationships? Here's a good measuring stick. Look closely at the relationships you find most satisfying and least exhausting, and you will inevitably find some element of unconditionality. What are the relationships that are least exhausting? What are the ones that you are just exhausted from? You are just worn out from. 
What are ones that aren't very sustaining? And I'll guarantee you, if you are worn out, if you are exhausted, either you have placed conditions on someone, a son, a daughter, a friend, a wife, a mother, a husband, a team, or they have placed them on you. And both of you are worn out out. You are exhausted. Why? Because either one of you is trying to perform to get the other one's favor. Grace doesn't perform. It just receives love freely. You see, we struggle with grace because we think grace has to be earned somewhere. And we are even suspicious of it. We know we're saved by grace, but we're living by the sweat of our performance, hoping to keep our salvation. So many people in our world, and maybe it's you, maybe you're the wife. You keep waiting for your husband to perform. You say, I give you grace, and and you do for a season, and then he screws up again, and you come right after him. Or you're the, you're the husband. You say you give grace to your wife and you do in a season and then she does something and you come after her. It's just this boxing match of perform. You haven't performed. You haven't measured up. And there isn't grace. Grace keeps no records of wrongs. And the reality is this. So many people are uncomfortable with grace because it releases them of control over that person. You see, we like control. I'm going to make that man into the man I want him to be in. I'm going to make my wife into the woman I want her. I'm going to make my husband, my son, my daughter, I'm going to get them to do what I want them to do if it takes the life out. And you are exhausted. So you are trying to make them perform so that You have control over their lives instead of releasing them into the hands of grace. We do the same with our relationship with God. We wake up and say, boy, it's a good day today. And you say, why is it a good day? Well, I had my devotions and I got up five minutes before. It's like we keep a golf scorecard. It's like if we go to bed and we're four over, it's not a good day. God doesn't love me because I'm four over. I need two birdies. I need an eagle. And if I really need to get things good, I need an albatross or a whole one today. That's how we live. Listen to me. That's craziness, Grace. That's, that's absolutely craziness. You are performing And the whole tenets of Christianity are built on grace. And so we build these systems. You feel better about yourself because you got something done. You feel better about yourself because you no longer struggle with the sin. You feel better about yourself because you read your Bible. Grace forces us to rely on the goodness of another. And that can be terrifying for those who are control freaks. Jesus goes looking for them. Again, after he's resurrected, why? Because he wants them to know that he loves them. So he gives them a fishing tip, and the fishing tip is a good one. And I picture Jesus, like, standing there. They're not sure it's Jesus at first, and they see this man on the shore, and he gives them a fishing tip. They're like, come on, we're fishermen. Just put it on the other side. And as soon as they do, he knows that they're going to catch 153 fish, the text says. He also knew they were hungry from fishing all night. And so he's cooking them a meal. He relieves us of our endless desire to make up for our own sin. Watch what happens next in verse 7. 
Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard this, It is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and he jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. He had a charcoal fire ready for them. I love this moment. Seriously, I, I love this picture of Jesus. What should have been judgment was fresh fish and chips cooking on an open fire for some men who had deserted him. I wonder where you could do this for someone. Instead of trying to figure out, hey, I'm going to show you, I'm going to show you, I'm going to show you, and I'm going to give you time, and I'm going to give you this, I'm going to give you that. Just invite yourself into their world and just love them. No agenda, no track, just unconditional love. If you think Jesus only blesses good people to those that stand faithfully in times of trials, to those that never deny him, to those that always trust and obey him, then why is he barbecuing fish on an open fire for seven men who had deserted him? You see, the Bible is not a story of the best people making it up to God, but a story of God making it down to the worst people. Can I get an amen over here somewhere? There's nothing you and I can ever do that will make us better in the eyes of God. You got to get over that one. Listen, but we do it all the time to people. You'll be a better husband and You'll be a better wife. You'll be a better son-in-law. You'll be a better daughter. You'll be a better daughter-in-law. You'll be better. You'll be better if you do this. And when you do that, you show them approval when they do that. Why don't you just show them unconditional approval all the time? That's what grace does. However much we hate the law, we are more afraid of grace because we are natural-born do-it-yourselfers. And we've forgotten what the hub of Christianity is. It's not do something for Jesus. It's Jesus has done everything for us. See, we're afraid to extend grace. Because we fear that somehow we will be taken advantage of by that person. Yet the truth remains that when a person is loved unconditionally with grace and their weakness, they blossom. And as soon we'll be showing traits that we've never seen before in them, living with a newfound confidence, and they may even begin to look a little different. Where are you trying to control a child? You're saying, you might not tell them, but you know, you don't fully accept them and their behavior and what they're doing until, just listen to me, grace just loves them. Grace looks at them and opens up a fire and doesn't remember that three, three times before you died, they denied you. It just says, come, eat with me. Here, come. In fact, I'll serve you. Sit down a while. Let's talk life. That's grace. See, that's not performance. And we have Christian families that have parents that place pressure to perform on their kids and the kids want nothing to do with them and they just run. 
Why? Because you're asking them to perform instead of just loving them. And Jesus looks at these disciples and says, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you. Watch what happens next. Verse 10 says, Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of fish, large fish, 153 of them. One of them must have been an accountant, counted them. And even with so many fish, The net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? Why? Why didn't they ask him? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. Why, you might ask, why didn't they ask who it was when they knew who it was? Here's why, here's why, here's why I believe. Because they didn't feel deserving of this meal from him. And isn't that the case with us? Many of us, too, don't want to feel like we deserve anything from God because of our performance. We resist grace by nature because we are suspicious of the promises that seem to be too good. You do it, listen, think about how you do it now. We're all suspicious. We'll say, nothing's free if you hear someone say, it's totally free, just go get one. They'll give you $25. No, 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 nothing's free. Yes, it is. Grace is free. Your salvation is free. Like how many of you, when you get an email that says, hey, you've just won $500, what do you do? You can't delete it quick enough. You got to be suspicious. They must want, there's got to be a catch somewhere. Or you get this pop-up screen, you're on Twitter, on social media, Instagram, and Facebook, and this pop-up screen comes up and says, you have been selected, you're the thousandth viewer, you have just won a $1,000 Amazon card, you can't delete that thing quick enough. But some of you might even go so far as begin, you're a little curious, and you begin to fill it out, name, email, and then they have this survey you have to fill out and answer these questions, and you're like, it's okay so far. Wait a minute. Then it says, you got to post it on, no, I'm not posting on Facebook. Delete. And some of us don't believe that anything is free. Why? Because we don't understand grace. We don't understand it. We somehow believe that there's a catch to everything. You see, grace in many minds is too good to be true. There must be some ulterior motive. We've stopped opening emails. We've stopped pop-up screens and mail that says you won. We want to know where's the catch. Grace turns our world upside down. It disrespects our values. It pops the bubble of our self-righteousness. It suspends reciprocity and introduces chaos. It throws out our to-do list right out the window. It releases us control of others and our world, and we hate it. Yet that's what the foundation of Christianity is built on. What if Jesus measured us and chose to give us salvation based on our performance? And when we receive it, we never, ever forget it. So Jesus is with these disciples, and he's, he says, I just want to let you know, hey, I don't remember that like you do. I just want to spend time with you. You're my friend. I love you. In this book, I just recently read the story 
called One Way Love, the author tells the story of, of he and his girlfriend before they got married. And they found themselves in this very difficult situation. Here's the story. He says, I'll never forget when Kim came over to my apartment one night, his girlfriend, after work, and told me she was pregnant. I was devastated. Not just because the news was a shock or because I hadn't expected to be a parent at such a young age. I was devastated because everyone who had celebrated my return to the fold would think the turnaround was a false alarm. I'd caused my family so much pain and heartbreak with my self-absorbed shenanigans And they had been so relieved and excited that their reckless son had finally come back. It had been the answer to years and years of prayer. I'd put my parents through more than any son ever should and had asked for their forgiveness on numerous occasions. To drop this bomb might crush them all over again, and I just couldn't bear it. I was scared, ashamed, and angry for myself for failing yet again. Somehow, we summoned the courage, my girlfriend and I, to go over to my mom and dad's house the next day, Mother's Day, believe it or not. After some awkward small talk, I asked my father if we could speak to him alone. We walked to the driveway. Dad was standing in front of me, and Kim was by my side, shoulder to shoulder. Dad, we have something to tell you. I burst into tears. Kim's pregnant. Kim started bawling too. The next thing I knew, he was embracing both of us, me with one arm, her with the other, while we wept. He held us for 10 minutes. He could see how overwhelmed we were. I can still hear his voice telling us, it's okay, we love you, it's going to be okay, the child is going to be a blessing to our world. Kim and I had been so excited about getting married, and now we were going to be parents as well. In addition to the embarrassment and shame involved, we were grieving the happy expectation that we'd have a few years, just the two of us, before starting a family. We were in a state of shock. Yet my father did not condemn or lecture us, even though he had every right to do so. Instead, he comforted us. More than that, he gave us good news. He told us that while the circumstances clearly weren't ideal, that this was going to turn out just fine. This baby was going to be a blessing to both us and a gift to the whole family. And every time Kim and I look at our oldest son, now 18, we realize afresh that my dad was absolutely right on that day. The whole situation was wrapped in grace. I deserved his reproach, his disapproval. Premarital sex resulting in unexpected pregnancy is no father's dream for his child, yet his gracious response ensured me that he was not only wasn't crushed, his love for me was stronger than ever. When I told him through many tears how sorry I was for once again letting him down, he simply hushed me by hugging me tighter and saying over and over again, it's okay, I love you, it's okay, I love you. It's okay, I love you. At that moment in the driveway, when I rightly deserved my dad's disappointment, he assured me of his delight. And even now, it's hard to put in the words the emotional relief I felt. Life-saving is not too strong a word. I thank God with every fiber of my being that he put me in a family where I was surrounded by such one-way love. 
So Jesus meets with his disciples and then he realizes there's one there that's still carrying a heavy burden because he knew he probably was being hard on himself because his performance was F minus when he denied Christ three times. So as they're seated there eating, having filet of fish and bread, Jesus grabs one of them by Peter and he says, hey, go for a walk with me. So we see him actually pulling him away from the fire, and they're taking this walk along the shoreline. Look what happens in this walk. Verse 15 of chapter 21. When it finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you, Jesus said. Take care of my sheep. The third time he said to them as they're walking along, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you used to dress yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And then he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This is the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he asked the Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, if I want him to to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. On this private walk, he does not humiliate him. But in a loving way, he reminds him that he's been forgiven for the three times that he rejected him. Feed my sheep, I love you. Feed my sheep, care for them. Bam, one, two, three. Jesus gently restores him on this walk. This post-cross Jesus has just cooked fish. And these men who were feeling miserable, like miserable failures, are now receiving unconditional love. And on this unbelievable walk with Peter, instead of removing him as one of his disciples, he does just the opposite and gives him more responsibility. And he commissions him as a pastor, as an apostle, as a disciple. Come on, church. Imagine. You just had your worst day. Everyone knows. You bring up your report card, your performance. Peter comes up. The last thing that he had done is fail, fail, deny, deny, deny. He hands in his report card at the end of the day, and God says, listen, you got what it takes to be a pastor. March on, brother. Grace. Grace, grace. Not performance, performance, performance. And in many eyes, he didn't have what it takes, but Jesus doesn't rate our performance as a way to determine whether or not he will love us or use us. What often gets lost in the story is this. 
as they're walking along, the text says, they get to the end of this conversation, and Peter turns and looks back. John's following them. Have you ever wondered why John's following them? And so Pete looks back, and Jesus restores him, restores him, restores him, and he looks back and says, what about him? What about John? You know, John, he's the one. He never does anything wrong. Like he was standing with your mom at the cross. Like, why do you want to use me? Don't you want to use him? And basically Jesus says, if I wanted him, I would have him here. I want you to know that you have what it takes, Peter. As I read this account, I'm blown away by the grace of God and I'm reminded what qualifies us for service is God's devotion to us, not our devotion to him. I wonder, I just wonder, where you're keeping score, where someone's not performing. Maybe it's you. Maybe you just look at yourself. I mean, God can't love me like this. I got to keep working, jump in. I got to do this, got to do that. And so now your plan is, I'm going to go show someone. I'm going to perform to them. I'm going to perform. And they'll love me more. They'll know that I love them by performing. And so even though you think you have it, that's not it. It's just grace, grace, grace. And you will be exhausted until you fully comprehend that there is this thing called inexhaustible grace that God keeps giving and giving and giving and giving. In this book, One Way Love, the author gives an incredible definition of grace, and I want to read it to you. He said this, Christians often speak about grace with a thousand qualifications. They add all sorts of buts and breaks. He says, listen for them. Our greatest concern, it seems, is that people will take advantage of grace and use it as a justification to live licentiously lives. Sadly, while attacks on morality typically come from outside the church, attacks on grace typically come from inside the church. The reason is because somewhere along the way, we've come to believe that this whole enterprise is about behavioral modification, and grace just doesn't possess the teeth to scare us into changing. So we end up hearing more about what grace isn't than what we do about what grace is. And then he says this, where disobedience flourishes, it's not the fault of too much grace, but rather of our failure to grasp the death of God's one-way love for us in the midst of our transgressions and greed. Grace and obedience are not enemies by a long shot. John said this in John chapter 3 and verse 30. He says, we must, he must increase, and I must decrease. Decreasing is impossible for the person who keeps thinking about his performance or the performance of others. There's a song that's out. It's called, Just Call It Grace. And they have a video that goes with it that captures what I've been trying to say throughout this message. Just sit and watch this.
It's the light that pierces through you to the darkest hidden place. It knows your deepest secrets, but it never looks away. It's the gentle hand that pulls you from the judgment of the crowd. When you stand before them guilty and you've got no Imagine that all of us are at different places right now thinking about grace. And if we're really honest, we probably struggle with it. For those of us who don't think we're so bad, 
Grace is hard. And for those of us who know that we are, grace is free. And grace can be so frustrating for a performer. But God, I pray that these prisons that we've placed ourselves in, these chains of performance that we've placed on ourselves and others, that we drag everywhere we go, and it just dictates how we feel about ourselves and even how you feel about us throughout a day or a week, I pray, God, that you would just break those down. And I pray, God, in a fresh way that you would give us a fresh understanding of what grace is. And may we learn to live in such a way with our hands wide open, released of control of others and ourselves, and just walk in the love with no conditions that you offer us, and in turn become who you intended us to be. Our world is dying for grace, dying for it. Husbands are exhausted. Wives are exhausted. Children are exhausted. Parents are exhausted because we expect performance. I pray, God, break us of those chains. And I ask that we would be able to just sit at the charcoal fire with you, Jesus, and know that no matter what we've done or no matter what we brought to that fire, you love us just the same. We love you, God. So help us this year to shake off these patterns that have disrupted, destroyed, thwarted your work and relationships. And may this be the year that we truly just give grace. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. See you next week.